And so I get to introduce you Zach Ritz this morning so he can start making his way up here. Zach is the uh, pastor and planter of Veritas Church in Warrington, Virginia. His wife, Carrie, uh, was a longtime member of UBC until she met Zach. Uh, she served on the worship team and in the youth ministry. And Zach said that he had, there, there was not more, or wait, more than a few men who challenged to hurt him if he did anything to Carrie. Uh, you'll know that's funny because Zach's over there. He's a big dude. Um, uh, and, and Zach and Carrie, they've been happily married for 13 years now. They have three amazing kids, Benaiah, Judah, and Selah. And they have a dog named Moses. Moses. Let's give it up for Zach Ritz. That's so great. Thank you so much, Patrick. And also, thank you to Noah, right? Way to go, man. Yeah, yes. Great job. Poor guy got stuck with like the long psalm this morning, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, it's so good to be here with you all, Uniontown. My goodness, right? Um, so yes, Carrie grew up here in the church. You, uh, Uniontown Bible Church produced a pastor's wife. That's powerful. That's awesome. 20 years, right? Yeah, of faithful ministry. I was also a new member at once. When we met, we ended up joining uh, Uniontown. So I remember what it was like being up on stage as well. And I was a member here for about two years before we went to Bible college at Moody Bible Institute, but not the one in Chicago because I have a past um, and I didn't have very good grades, okay? Went to North Carroll High School, all right? Yeah, which no longer exists. Man, a lot has changed, right? 13 years ago is when we left. It's been 13 years since I preached one of my first sermons ever at Uniontown Bible Church when we were at Carroll Lutheran down the street. Remember that? 13 years. A lot has changed in my life since we left to go to Bible college. Matter of fact, now a seminary degree later, two church plants later, three kids Later, and yes, one big slobbering dog. Later, here we are. 13 years. A lot has changed in my life, and, and I'm guessing a lot has changed in your life as well. 13 years of Uniontown Bible Church, right? A lot has changed in the church as well, and praise God for his faithfulness. Amen? Praise God for his faithfulness in my life and in your life and in this church's life. So too, a lot has changed in our world and in our culture since the last time I brought the Word of God to you in 13 years. And so I'm very thankful for Pastor Frank and for the elders of UBC for their commitment and their courage to preach the Word of God in a time when the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to it. Not just indifferent to the Word of God, like who cares, but, but, but hostile against the truth. Now this morning, we're going to answer that question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Today, that's a question, right, uh, that, that should be asked. We wish it was asked, right? What is truth? Now this is a rhetorical question, right, that uh, uh, Pilate asked Jesus. Little did he know that Jesus was actually the most qualified person in all the world and universe, right, of all time to answer that question for him. 
You know, a few months ago, I was invited to, uh, to preach at an event called Pub Theology. Okay, it, was, it, was, it met at O'Brien's Irish Pub. Okay, it was called Pub Theology. So I took that invitation, and I went and I preached the gospel. And it was awesome because not only uh, were there some people from our church, Veritas, uh, that the church plant from Warrington, that were able to go, but were also able to invite a lot of non-church folks as well, people that would not come to church on a Sunday morning. But when you say pub theology at, at O'Brien's Irish Pub, hey, we had a lot of guys show up. Yeah, a lot of guys that didn't know Jesus show up. And one of them, after I finished my talk, took me off guard because he said, Zach, he asked me the same question, Zach, what is truth? I was so taken back, the fact that he even asked that, right? I'm thinking Pilate and Jesus, right? He said, Zach, what is truth? Now, I may not be Jesus, but as a pastor, I ought to be able to give a, a decent answer to that question. He continued. He said, you know, there's, some, there's a lot of things going on in my family's life, and particularly there's two family members that are destroying their life and, and really causing a lot of relational conflict within the family as well, kind of tearing our family apart, and, and in large part it's due to addiction. And he said, but, but how do I know that what I see as the cause of all of it, right? And, and how do I know that what I want to say to them and, and, and to the rest of the family, who I think is also enabling it, like there's things that I want to say, but Zach, how do I know that what I, want, that what I see and what I want to say is true? What if they don't listen to me? I told them that's actually a very good question, and it's much of the reason why we named our church that we planted last year in a time such as this, Veritas, which is Latin for truth, for truth. You know, our culture believes and has believed for a while, and now we're just living in the fruit of that, that all truth is relative, right? My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. Have you ran into that at all in the culture today? Hey, that's good for you. You go to Uniontown and you love Jesus, awesome. Guess what? I don't. You know, and so that's your truth, and that's your truth, but this is my truth. So then, even if you can point out something in someone's life, a, a cause of pain or suffering or damage, they can also say to you, so what? So what? So what? I'm going to live my life how I please. So therefore, not only is the question, what is true, right? But by whose authority is something right or wrong? Right? Because you might get it right. You might see it how it is. And it is true. But it's not only is it true, but by whose authority is something right or wrong? I mean, if we get to determine our own truth, I suppose we get to determine our own morality too. And that's the culture we're living in. However, I told my friend, if there is a God, and there is, and I told him, if he created the world, and he did, and if he's sovereign over the world that he created, and he is, and if he has a plan and a purpose for us, and he does, then truth is how God sees it and how God defines it. Right and wrong are determined also by him. So to answer what is truth, we must begin with God. God, our God, our God, 
in Psalm 139. If you haven't turned there already, please do. We'll see this morning that what God sees and what God says is truth. My prayer is that by the end of the sermon that we will have the courage and the commitment to remain true to what God sees and what God says. Not only when we go out and we see what's going on in our culture, but also with what we see when we look into the mirror. We must agree with God about what he sees and what he says is true. Because what we see first in Psalm 139 is that God is omniscient. There's a big Bible college word, right? Omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. David writes in Psalm 139, 1 through 6, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. And you discern my thoughts from afar. Not only does my God see me physically, but he sees right through me. He knows the thoughts that I'm thinking. He, he, he knows the, the feelings that are going on in with, inside of me. Matter of fact, he, search, he says, you search out my path and my lying down. You know where I'm going each day. When I wake up, you search out my path. And you also know that when I get back home, right, and when I lay down for the day, you know that too. Matter of fact, you are acquainted with all my ways. You, you, you know all of my comings and my goings, but not only that, you're acquainted with my ways, <laughs> The type of person I am, my personality, how I react in, in different situations. You discern also my behavioral patterns, if you will. You're well acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Look at this intimate language of the Lord. This almost sounds like the intimate knowledge of a spouse who even knows the thoughts that you're thinking before you even say them. Knows the words, sometimes you even say it at the same time, right? I mean, it's crazy how we finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> he says, you hem me in. Gosh, God's knowledge of all creation is not just like a computer engineer knowledge of all things, though for all my engineers in the room, it is that too but it's also so intimate, so relational, so personal. Verse five, you hem me in. Got any sowers in the room? You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. God is not far off. He is much closer than you would imagine. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain to it. My God is so much greater than I possibly can imagine. Brothers and sisters, one thing that we need to point out here is that we cannot fake out God. I know we know that, but sometimes we still try. Why? Because we can fake out one another. On, on a Sunday morning, especially in a bigger church, you especially can fake out one another, especially as the countdown clock begins, and you know you have to get to your seat. And all the introverts said, yes, Right? Yes, you can hide, you can fake, you can put on a face. Y'all look great this morning. But you guys can be, and so can I. We can be fake, we can put on a front, can make people think one thing about us when it's not true. 
either about that day, that week, or really about our character. But man looks at the outward appearance. God looks to the heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions. He knows your impulses. Even when you're not thinking clearly, he knows that too. He knows when you say things that you don't mean, and he knows what you meant to say. He knows why you post the things you do on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. He knows why you're doing that. He knows your intention. He knows your motivation. He knows why you say the things you do and why you remain silent when you should speak up. It is impossible to live your life hidden from the knowledge of God, and it's also impossible for you to escape his presence. God is omnipresent. He's all present everywhere at all times. These two truths either bring about great fear or great comfort. He's omnipresent. Look here, we kind of see both happening, both like a great comfort and a praise, but also kind of like a bit of a fear thing going on too. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is the place of the dead. If I go to heaven, obviously God's going to be there. I think we all could have got that one right. Yeah? I mean, even if I go down to the depths of Sheol, to the place of the dead, even there, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, okay, we tried up, we tried down, let's try out there, distance. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. That's awesome. You beat me there. <laughs> right, your hand is leading me. You're not just trying to keep up. And your right hand shall hold me. Again, very intimate language. This should bring you much comfort. Or, even verse 11 maybe brings in a bit of a fear. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, perhaps I will hide from you, God. Even the darkness, though, is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So there's a bit of a Jonah thing going on here, right? With this presence and fleeing from the Lord, trying to escape God's thoughts towards us, His will for our lives. That's kind of like a Jonah, isn't it? But it's not possible, is it, to truly escape the will of God? We cannot flee also from His presence. That's a bit of the tension that rises. Why would anyone want to run from the presence of God? Why would anyone want to hide from His presence? Can you think of anyone in the Bible that ever tried to hide from the presence of God? You don't have to go very far, right? Our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned against God, their conscience was inescapable. They had guilt and they had shame for they disobeyed God. And now, here He comes. Here He comes, oh no, they, they hid their shame uh, by clothing themselves with the fig leaves. And then they fled and they hid into the bushes to escape His presence. Perhaps the only thing more unbearable than carrying around the weight of their sin was to come face to face with the righteous and holy judge who would tell them indeed that they had sinned and that they would have to answer for it. 
This is why people are terrified, such as my friends that came to pub theology that night, why they're terrified to come to church. Jesus says, for fear that their deeds would be exposed by the light of the truth of God's word. And so too, that's why we hide our sin from one another too, is it not? Due to guilt and shame, we try to hide our sin from one another, keep it from each other, not wanting to go to uh, intimate in knowledge with another, lest they actually ask us the same question back, and we have to share what we're really struggling with. But all those things, brothers and sisters, will keep us from not the intimate presence of God. And these truths will become fearful rather than delightful, right? These truths of not being able to escape God's thoughts and God's presence should be encouraging to us. But if we're not right with God, they should be terrifying to us. And so if any here don't know Jesus, I pray this morning you come to know him. So that way your sins could be dealt with. You can bring your shame. Don't cover it up. Bring your shame. Bring your guilt to Christ. And so be forgiven and reconciled to God so that you would be in such joy to come into the house of the Lord. Amen? You would say to yourself, I want to dwell in this place, right? Forever. Man, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. We used to sing that one too, didn't we? And if you don't confess your sins to the Lord, that will mean destruction. If we don't confess our sins to one another and so be healed likewise. You've seen that happen in people's lives, have you not? Confess our sins, therefore, to the Lord and to one another. No hiding. No covering up. Doesn't everyone here in this place need Jesus this morning? Okay. Then don't pretend like you don't. Amen? Know this too, that God is all-knowing, God is all-present, and God is also all-powerful. God is omnipotent. Psalm 139 verses 13 through 18 says, not only does he know about everything, not only does he know all about us, right? Not only is he present in all places, he created all the places, and he created you and I. Psalm 139, 13 through 18, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, true of Noah, true of me, true of you, Yes, your eyes, O Lord, saw my unformed substance. Sounds like Genesis 1. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If he knows you like that, every day of your life, sovereignly planned and fitted, formed perfectly for you, and that he knows that for all of us, this is a big enough room you could look around and say, that is mind-blowing. And we don't even make up all of Uniontown. Maybe about 50%. Just kidding. Okay, I'm from here, from small town. From Manchester, even smaller. 
But have you ever thought about that? Like on DC or on 95 and you see all these cars in traffic, okay, and you get angry like me, okay? But then you just pause and think, gosh, I got somewhere to go. Yep, God knows that and he also knows where everybody else is going too. That is just... How vast are the sum of God's thoughts towards us individually, let alone collectively? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, O Lord, and I am still with you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. I love this. In your book was written all the days formed for me. Gosh, we are simply a character in the story of the mind of God. That should just mind-blow emoji. Right? You are a character in the story of God. He is the author of all things, both from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation and everything in between. He is the author of all things. Have you ever heard it said, I think and therefore I am? Wrong. God thought of you and therefore you are. God thought of me. And therefore I am. And he knitted me together and formed for me the days of my life. I would not have existed had God not thought of me. You know, my kids, we love doing this. The boys and I, we we came up with a story because we watch like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings stuff, and we're just like, this is awesome. Like creating entire worlds, right, that don't exist. Or do they? No. Uh, that don't ex- and, and it just said, like, that's so cool. This all came from that one guy's mind. That's incredible. And so we said, let's try to do it. So, uh, a story called The Adventures of Publi and Tom. Okay, Publi is from uh, England and Tom, right? Uh, his accent goes in and out sometimes. <laughs> the boys usually say, Dad, is he American or is he English? I was like, ah. It's like well, he went to school in America, so he kind of... comes and goes a little bit. (laughs) But there's also Michael, their friend Michael. And then, of course, don't forget about Stephanie and Kate. And probably like Stephanie, right? (laughs) But look, I mean, there's so many adventures and things that we, we could share with you. But guess what? All that just came from our minds, right? They only exist because we thought of them. There'd be no such thing as Publi and Tom without the author thinking and forming what they're going to do next. That's incredible to think about God and his thoughts towards us. God thought of me, and therefore I am. It's his book. It's his story. And I'm just a character in it. So then I need to remember as I go forth from here, and all of us, that we must think God's thoughts after him. He's already thought of it. He's already defined it. He already sees it. He's already created it. We just need to agree with him. We need to think God's thoughts after him. Whatever God sees, whatever God says, we must also see the world as he sees it and define everything in the world as God defines it. For he is the creator of all things. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present Lord over all of life for all time, and is the author and determiner of the purpose and goal of our story and the purpose of his book, which is ultimately to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. God does not stop forming us after we're born, but he continues to mold us and make us more into the image of his beloved son. If we're to become like God's son, though, we must see the world as he sees it, and we must think God's thoughts after him. We must define truth, goodness, and beauty as God's book defines it. We cannot call that which is false truth. We cannot call that which is evil good. And we cannot call that which is detestable beautiful. We must instead remain committed to truth as you have all these years. Let us continue. Even if it means that we will incur the wrath of God's enemies, those who hate God and who hate truth. And that's where the psalmist goes next. That's where David goes next. If I'm going to remain committed to you, O God, your enemies are going to hate me because they hate you. Psalm 139, verses 19 through 20. If you read this in your quiet time, you might choke on your coffee. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Right? We were doing so good, weren't we? Like uh, fearfully and wonderfully made and like, ah, this is, and then just, you know? Again, because of our cultural sensitivities. But David sees this as the most logical place to go next. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They want to kill me. They speak against you, O God, with malicious intent. Their desire is to do you harm. They hate you. Your enemies take your name in vain. They mock you. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. The word for complete is perfect. With perfect hatred. Righteous hatred. True hatred. Complete hatred. And I count them, God, your enemies as my enemies. If we're to be committed to truth, then we must love the things that God loves hate the things that he hates. And that's true. Uh, matter of fact, uh, think about it this way, if this is hard, if this hard pill to swallow. If somebody wants to be an enemy against my family, or yours, they've got no business with you. They just want to do harm to your loved ones. So they come in to do harm to your loved ones. Does that enemy of your loved ones become your enemy? We're not Quakers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Hey, if you want to do harm to my loved ones and you're coming in my house to do harm to my loved ones, guess what? You may not have thought that you had an enemy before, but buddy, you just got an enemy. A big one. Again, this hatred that David has, it's not because they hate him. They got no business with David. He says, these are your enemies. I count them as my enemies, but, but first and foremost, they are your enemies, O God. Perfect hatred is when enemies of God become our enemies because God is truth. And we love truth, but his enemies are liars. The first one, Satan. God is good. His enemies are evil. God is beautiful. 
His enemies are detestable. It's not personal. We don't hate them because they hate us. The Pharisees got it wrong. That's what they were trying to teach. A lot of us are thinking, I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. Yes, we are. The hatred should be a perfect and righteous hatred. The Pharisees tried to get that all twisted. What did they say? Hate those who hate you. If your neighbor hates you, hate him back. If your boss hates you, hate him back. If your spouse hates you, hate him back. Hate those who hate you. Jesus says, no. Love those who hate you. You're not God. Love those who hate you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Pray for those who want to take advantage of you. And if your boss asks you to do something, go the extra mile. But Jesus also said, they're going to hate you. (laughs) Why? Because they first hated me. A servant is not greater than his master. If they hated your master, we should count it strange if they don't hate us as well, especially as we are being made and conformed more into his image. Amen? So Psalm 139, he's not talking about a personal enemy. It's not about making enemies out of those who sin against you. It's God's enemies. His enemies are those who disagree with him, hate him, want to make themselves out to be God, who challenge God as their judge, who tells God, who are you to tell me how I ought to live? Matter of fact, those who hate God become God's judge or think that they can be. Such lying, such evil, such detestable thoughts were like some of us before we came to know the Lord. Amen? Enemies of God. But we must be committed to truth. We must remain committed to truth, which is to be committed to God. And if we're committed to God, his enemies will become our enemies. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you also. So our hatred does not come from a love of ourselves, but from a love of our God. I love what God says in his word. Do you? I love his truth. I love his goodness. I love his morality. It is always right. It is always right time and time again. He is right. I'm wrong. He's smart. I'm dumb. He, right? He's got it all. He's right. He's true. He's good. He's beautiful. His design for marriage is true, is good, is beautiful. His design for raising children is true, is good, is beautiful. Everything that God has created, designed, is good, is true, is beautiful. And you know what? I do hate that which is not true, good, and beautiful. Not just in our world, but in me. Y'all feel that every week? I know you do. You hear the Word of God every week. Don't you hate that stuff in you? That is not true, good, and beautiful? That is not godly? That is not right? And so we must remain committed to truth. Our integrity and our loyalty to God must be far greater value to us than any other relationship in this world. To live for God alone, come what may. For to be committed to truth is going to attract the enemies of God. All who desire to live a godly life, says Paul, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I suppose the only way to avoid persecution would be to loosen your commitment to the truth. Sadly, so many have done that. 
and have avoided persecution because of it. And so have we individually. And I feel the temptation as much as you do. But if we are to remain committed to truth in a culture so hostile to it, we're going to probably need to be very courageous. (laughs) Courageous in truth. You know, Peter denied Jesus before the cross, didn't he? Not just once, but three times did he deny Jesus. And wasn't it to a slave girl? And he was terrified to associate himself with Jesus. But what about after the resurrection when Peter saw the risen Lord? Did he deny him ever again? No. Even to his death, all the apostles could not deny the risen Christ that they saw. They did, as we sang, uh, put their hands in his side and, in, and into his hands and his feet, right? And they could not deny that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior, and the King. And that now everybody, everywhere, they began preaching the gospel for people to repent of their sin. And they would have to explain what sin is. And then they would have to repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. And also, that He is Lord. He's, as we sang also, the King of kings. He's actually King over Caesar. Whoa, easy does it, right? They told them, look, you can heal people, that's fine. You can do good and love, love your neighbors well. Community service projects, totally fine, right? Community service projects are good and we ought to do them and love our neighbors as ourselves. But guess what? Nobody gets martyred for doing community service projects, right? The apostles didn't get martyred because they did loving things to their neighbor. They got martyred because they preached about Jesus Christ and the fact that everyone's a sinner and and needs to place their faith in him, and that he is Lord and King over all. No, that part will get you thrown in jail. That part will get you killed. So did they stop preaching the gospel of Jesus as Savior and King? No, and so they were killed. Most of them tortured. Why? For simply telling the truth. They were faithful witnesses, as Jesus said they would be. Brothers and sisters, we must be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ in our day. Faithful witnesses. Now more than ever, we need less Pharisees and more courageous men, perhaps like John the Baptist. You know, I was watching a, this theater, of, it's called Godspell, that was happening, it took the whole family there. Have you guys ever uh, seen it? Um, so basically, it's like a modern reenactment, right, in, in a coffee shop setting, and, uh, and they're all kind of just hanging out, you know, reading their books and stuff, and then it goes into the whole play. And it's just a modern reenactment of the, the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, and so they're, I mean, it's fun. You know, it's like uh, kind of lighthearted all the way throughout. Gets pretty serious towards the end of the book of Matthew, of course. Uh, but there was one part, and they're being silly. A lot of skits throughout the whole thing. But the one part was uh, three Pharisees dressed up in black robes, and they had on masks. Uh, the, the glasses kind with the mustache and big nose. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. They had on the masks and they were, judging, they were judging Jesus and they were trying to catch him and slip him up. You know how they always tried to do that? That's comical in itself. But, but here they're wearing these masks. And I said, bingo. Pharisees wear masks. Pharisees wear masks. I, I know that we think they're the most religious people of the day, right? They're the most religious. No, they weren't. 
Is that what Jesus said about them? Did Jesus say that they were the most righteous people of the day? No. They were fake. They were phony, inwardly whitewashed tombs. They put on the look, though, didn't they? I mean, they looked the part on the outside, but inside Jesus like, I know your thoughts. I see them from afar. No. However, John the Baptist, he was a righteous dude, right? And he didn't really care what he looked like. He wore camel's hair, right, and ate locusts and honey. He wasn't too worried about what he looked like and on social media. <laughs> no, he, he proclaimed the righteousness of God, and he called people to repent. He wasn't fake. He preached it, and he lived it. He was committed to truth, and he was also humble, too. He didn't think of himself greater than Christ. He, he said, may I decrease, and may Jesus increase. I'm unworthy to even untie the strap of his sandal. But nonetheless, repent of your sins for the kingdom of God is at hand. He lives truth and humbly yet courageously preaches truth. And get this, no one was off limits to John the Baptist. That's what got him killed. No one was off limits to needing to repent of their sin. Think about Herod, right? John the Baptist would preach against Joe Biden. Man, he would preach against that. He, he doesn't care. He's just preaching righteousness and calls it as he sees it, as God sees it. Doesn't care who's in office. This is for everyone. Kings and regular people. What is he, do you remember what happened with, with Herod? He divorced his wife and took his brother's wife who happened to be his niece. I'll let you catch up there. That means that now he's her husband and her uncle. Yeah, everything coming undone. <laughs> That's so true. Like, just, what does John the Baptist say? That's not right. That's not, you're, you're supposed to be Herod, king of the Jews? What does God's law say? What does God's word say? That's sin. He just called it as it was. And what happened? He got put in prison. Herod knew he was a righteous man, but for the sake of his wife, niece, who hated John the Baptist, he tried to put him in prison, tried to shut him up. But that didn't work. She wanted him dead. So what did she do? She got her daughter, even younger, niece, even younger, to dance for her husband, uncle, and he liked it. That John the Baptist didn't say, well, you know, this is an acceptable alternative lifestyle, you know, and uh, we just need to accept the fact that Herod likes this kind of stuff. No, he said, this is sin. This is evil. This is not good. This is not true. This is not beautiful. And what happened? He liked it and said, I'll give you whatever you want. And what did she say? John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so he got his head chopped off. Matter of fact, the only thing that could shut up John the Baptist was for his head to be chopped off. But brothers and sisters, we don't need any more virtue-signaling Pharisees. We need true men and women of righteousness. Not just on the outside. Matter of fact, less so on the outside, on the inside. And it's going to take the work of God and his word and Christ and his gospel and his spirit to do that sort of work. But brothers and sisters, we need it. We need it. 
We need that. Like the, the Pharisees, man, they look so good. You know, they had the long phylacteries on their head, right? They know so much scripture. They wore the robes. Everyone thought they were the most religious people of the day. But Jesus said, no, they're not. Inwardly, they are whitewashed tombs. Inwardly, they love power. Inwardly, they love money. Inwardly, they love the glory of man, and they think about them more than they love the glory of God. May that not be true for any one of us. No virtue signaling. True righteousness. Men and women courageous and committed to the truth, come what may. How do we become these sorts of courageous men and women? By praying as David closes his psalm with. By praying this last prayer. Matter of fact, memorize this, pray it every week, maybe pray it every day. But may this always be our prayer. As he goes from looking around him, and he goes from seeing the wickedness and the enemies of God all around him, what does David do? He prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. If I'm wrong, tell me. If I'm not in the right, show me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. We must be so committed to truth that we can pray this prayer as we look into our mind, body, and soul and begin to hate that which is false, evil, and ugly in us. That which is not Christ-like. That which is not true, not good, not beautiful, lest we simply become mask-wearing, virtue-signaling Pharisees. We must see ourselves the way God sees us, agree with him about what needs to be changed. For us to walk in truth, we must hate that which is false, not only in our world, but also in ourselves. And not just in ourselves, but also in our world. Some of us are better at doing this, some of us are better at doing this, but we need to do both. And then we ourselves need to go to Jesus for forgiveness, for assurance of our pardon and our cleansing so that our guilt and shame can be nailed to the cross and we resurrected new before we head out into the world and lead other people to him as well. And say, look, brother, I'm just as sinful as you, but indeed you are sinful. Uh, but, but let me take you to the one who has done away with all sin and give you the power to go and sin no more. Uniontown, let us be a generation who thinks God's thoughts after him, who remains committed to that truth, not only for our sake and our family's sake, but for the sake of the world around us. Let us not be a Pharisee. Let us not just talk a big game. Let us be courageous like the apostles, courageous like John the Baptist to speak the truth and to live it. God's enemies may take off your head, but don't let them sever your integrity. Let us be faithful witnesses in our day and in our time and point the world to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you made a wretch like me your treasure. I thank you, Lord, that by your grace you taught our hearts to fear you rather than mock you and hate you. And then by your same grace, our fears were relieved. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation work in our lives. Thank you that you formed us, not only in our mother's womb, 
and formed all the days for us of our lives and all the good works for us to walk in. But Lord God, that you're not done. You're still molding us, still making us. God, I pray you'd give us courage where we need courage, forgiveness where there needs forgiveness, restoration and reconciliation where where those things need to take place. Lord God, may we not hide, may we not run from your presence, from your goodness, from your love, from your mercy, from your truth, from your righteousness, from your justice. You are holy and you've made us holy in you. Lord, we want to see every knee bowed. We want to see every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, you say that you will be exalted in all the nations. You will be exalted among all peoples. By your gospel, it will be so. May we be faithful to preach it. Yeah. Fill us with your spirit. Embold us, God, to go forth and declare it. In Jesus' name, amen.